Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Title of today's message is simply, Punching Tyson. Don't start a fight that you cannot finish. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to get into our life and penetrate, bring supernatural change from the inside out. We thank you that it reads us more than we read it. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear specifically what you're saying to us individually and specifically to hear what you're saying to us as a church corporately. So overshadow us all today. Give us ears to hear and obedience to do what you're telling us to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. As you go take your seat, high five your neighbor and say, that is a really weird sermon title. I'm not sure if you've ever done that. If you've ever started something that once it got in flow that you regretted starting it in the first place like it had unintended consequences to what you had originally thought that, that it just got totally out of hand anybody have one of those experiences where you've done that when I, when I when I was a young pastor when I was in my 20s uh at uh, lead pastor at South City Christian Life Center. It was more like an overgrown youth ministry, people would call it, than a church, but we were a legit church. God did great things there. And uh, I was down in the auditorium one day and one of the youth guys came out and he had in his hand a large super soaker. You want to know what a super soaker is? Big like water gun, big water cannon. And he had it in his hands. And I was like, what are you doing with that? He said, well, pastor, we're, we're doing a youth event tonight. We're going to use the super soaker. And I said, well, are you planning to test it? Have you tried it out? You know, it works. And he's like, well, no. I said, you see, that's a problem around here. So I'm left to do everything. Make it my responsibility to make sure that your game actually works. And I said, fill it up with water. And so he races off, fills it up with water, comes back, here you are, sir. And I said, thank you, come with me. And so I grabbed the super soaker and I went up to my associate pastor's office. Jonathan Oster, I kicked the door and I walked into his office and I just drenched him with water. I enjoyed that so much, I went down to our worship pastor's office. Pastor Paul Z, I did the same thing, kicked the door in, walked into his office. He's doing musical charts. I thought, he needs a baptism. And so I, I downed him with water. 
And then I went to our youth pastor's office, Pastor Jürgen Matesius. He was in there counseling a young man. The young man's crying. I just doused Jürgen with water. I thought the young man's crying. He's wet anyway. And so I doused him with water. And what I didn't know was I started like probably the biggest water fight in the history of church water fights on the planet because it just took on a whole life of its own and within seconds became out of control. It, it, it involved guys grabbing fire hoses and opening up fire hoses. I remember at one point there, one of our interns being marched through the church and thrown into the baptismal tank. We had a guy delivering from New Zealand Post, just think of it like a UPS driver, come in to deliver some parcels to the church, and he left baptized, not in the Holy Ghost, but baptized in water. He was drenched. The thing was, and I couldn't get mad at anybody because I started it. And this is how it ended. It ended where we're like, we had so much water, everyone was drenched, and our our church secretary had barricaded herself into the financial office. And so we went and knocked on the door and we said, it's all over. You can come out now. And we thought she would just come out, but she didn't trust us. And so she'd grabbed a fire extinguisher that was in the financial office. And then she came out and when she opened the door, she just let the fire extinguisher off in the finance office and it just exploded. And it wasn't water and it wasn't foam. It was a powder fire extinguisher. And those things go everywhere. It was insane. I, and again, I can't be mad at anybody because I started it and it got incredibly out of control. That can happen in life sometimes. You start something, you don't anticipate the consequences, but it sets things on a destructive course and you can stand back and go, I, I didn't really think this was going to happen. I wonder if Adam ever felt like that. I wonder if Adam ever stood back and realized that his one act of disobedience would be so destructive, that with his one act of disobedience, that he would set in motion what we would end up knowing would be the law of sin and death. That when Adam bit into the fruit, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He set in motion a, a law, a series of events that he could never reverse. He bit into a fruit that came with an expiry warning, but it didn't come with a warning that this fruit will inspire on a certain date. He came with the warning that if you eat that fruit in that day, you will expire. You will die. Death will enter the world. Romans chapter 5 teaches us that through Adam's one act of disobedience, the law of sin and death entered the world. Verse 12 says, sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin and death spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. Verse 15 and 17, Adam's trespass meant death reign. Verse 18, Adam's trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Verse 19 says, for Adam's disobedience meant that every one of us is now born into sin and all of sin and all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. No, not one. 
Adam and Eve had had an intimate relationship with God, a personal, daily community with the Creator. But sin, when it entered the world, created separation between man and God. That separation began with Adam and Eve hiding away from God from the guilt of the sin that they had done. But it also means that a holy God cannot and will not dwell in a community of sin. And so what happened was God's arm of judgment, his arm of condemnation was extended and it created separation between man and God. But as all of this was set in play by one man being overcome by sin, Romans chapter 5 also teaches us that uh, sin was overcome by one man and his name is Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came and did one act of obedience and he set a new law into motion and that is the law of the spirit of life that is in Christ Jesus. In that law is grace. In that law is love. In that law is everlasting life. In that law is abundant life. In that law is righteousness. In that law is justification. That law meant that grace would reign, salvation would come, and sin would be defeated, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Is anybody in the house that is excited and happy that Jesus did that? It says, there is therefore now, everyone say now, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is no condemnation. 2,000 years ago, God extended his arms wide on Calvary. And he said, anybody who wants to come can come. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's frame this accurately so we can understand the principle clearly. There are two laws in play. The first law is the law of sin and death, and the second law is the law of the spirit of life that's in Christ. Now, the consequence of the law of sin and death is that the arms of God were extended outward and we were held out And God says, I cannot participate in the community of sin. And he keeps us away from his presence. The consequence of the law of the spirit of life that's in Christ is that there is therefore now no condemnation. That judgment is removed and the arms of God, like they were on the cross, are extended horizontally. And God says, I want to welcome you into life and I want to welcome into a life more abundantly. Welcome into my kingdom. Welcome into my family. Welcome, welcome home is what God says. Now the word law is used a few times in these passages And in the passage, there are two meanings for the word law. The first word law, which is we've been using in the verses I just spoke about, is a law that's not like a governmental law. So the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit of life, that law is not like a law that a king put into play or 
a president or a, a Congress or somebody else put in to play. That, that law is what we would call a universal law. That no matter where you go, no matter where you're at, that law applies. That, that the universal law is like the law of gravity. Gravity is a universal law. Gravity says what goes up must come down. Now, you can defy the law of gravity by putting another law in place, which is the law of lift. And the law of lift now overcomes gravity. So let's imagine the law of sin and death as law of gravity. What goes up must come down. And so the law of sin and death is constantly trying to pull you down, trying to pull you down to the ground. It's a battle. It's a weight that that law is just in Create, it's there and it's trying to bring us all down. Paul battled with that in Romans chapter 7, the preceding chapter to chapter 8. Paul's like, man, so frustrated with myself. And the thing I want to do, I just don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. And, and there's a frustration in him that says, you know what, I, 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 I want to move forward. I want to do right things. I keep end up doing bad things. I, I, I want to do smart things, keep up then dumb things. I, I want to do things that add life. And I just add, th- how many people have ever been in that scenario? And then he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, in those times, one of the cruel and unusual punishments, and as a society, humanity, we have really over the years, been very skilled at punishing people horribly. This was one of those punishments. What they would do to punish you, would they would take a dead body and they would strap either over your shoulders or to your body, the dead body. They would, they would strap the dead, as to punish you, they'd strap the dead body on your body. And as that body would decay, the decay would get into your body and eventually kill you. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's like, the law of sin and death is like, you strap death to me and I can't get away. And the thing I want to do, I don't do. The thing I don't want to do, I keep doing. I don't want this to infect me, but I can't seem to get it uh, away from me. Pulling us down, lowering us, getting us to drop the standard. Jesus' battle on the cross was when people wagged their heads at him and they looked at Jesus on the cross and they they tried to pull him down off the cross. They said, if you're the son of God, come down off the cross and then we'll believe in you. So in other words, if you come down to our level, if you come down to where we're at, then we're going to believe in you. I don't know if you've ever had anybody do that as a Christian, like you're trying to live a standard and you're, trying to break some habits and, you know, enter into that abundant life. And then you've got friends around you that like are consistently trying to pull you down to do what they do. They're trying to bring you down to their level. If you would just, if you would just do this, then, then we can be friends. Remember as a young Christian, I'd go to a, a, a party and somebody would like, do you want a drink? I say, yeah. So what do you want to drink? Uh, I don't know, Diet Coke. Fanta, lemonade, water, something like that. They said, ah, no, but you want a drink. 
like, well, yeah, on a diet, Coke, Fanta, water, lemonade, something like that. Yeah, no, no, a real drink, like, like, like a beer or a wine or a whiskey or something like that. And I said, well, I thought you asked the question, do I want a drink? Last time I checked, Coke, lemonade, water, all qualified in the realm of drink. Pretty sure if you look under the label drink, those things fit in drink. That's what I want to drink. Oh, yeah, but don't you? And they'll be like, you just don't want to drink because you're a Christian. No, no, no. I'm, not, I, I'm just setting some goals for myself. I'm setting some things that I, that I want to achieve in my life. And so people are always going to come party with us, come do this, come do that, and we've got to set a standard. We're going to make sure that we stay up at the Jesus level. Now let's imagine that the law of the spirit of life in Christ is like the law of lift. The law of lift helps you defy and fly. The law of gravity is trying to pull you down, but if you get in a jet airliner and you take off, you go into the law of lift, you can defy gravity. When you're engaged in the law of lift, the law of gravity is always trying to pull you down to earth. That's why turbulence on the plane is horrible. Ever been on a plane and a bit of, they, they loosen and then your plane drops because gravity's pulling the plane down? The lift is trying to take it up, and you're like, ah. if you're with your kids, you're trying to look cool. I remember being on a really small plane, flying between two small cities, and my girls were, were little. as the worst turbulence I've ever experienced in all my life. I think God was just up there with the weather angel, and he was like, John Morgan's flying. We're bored. Let's have some entertainment, create some turbulence. And that plane was bouncing up and down. I got two little girls. I'm trying to be the cool dad. So I'm sitting in the seat and I, I, I'm, I, I promise I put fingernails were left embedded in the seat. I'm trying not to look panicked. I'm like, don't worry, girls, this always happens. <laughs> but here's the reality. If we can get high enough, if we can use the law of lift to get us high enough, we can actually break out of the earth's orbit and we can get away from that gravitational pull into space through the law of lift. We can enter a zone where gravity no longer controls us. That's our objective in Christ. Our objective in Christ would be so plugged in, so living in the spirit of life that's in Christ, that one day you and I can become weightless in his grace. Now, the word law is also used here in verse 3, Romans chapter 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now this law is slightly different. This is a governmental law. This is the law that God gave Moses. It's the Mosaic law. So between Adam and Moses, no law. Law of sin and death is in place, but no like legislative law. So people are sinning, but they're not really knowing it's sin, even though it's sinful behavior. They probably know it's wrong. You kill your brother, you know that's not right. You steal something, you know that's not right. There's nothing really there to say it wasn't right. And so the Mosaic law came in and said things like, thou shalt not 
kill. Now we know you shouldn't do that, even though by nature you know killing's not good. Thou shalt not steal. Well, we all know if you've ever had anything stolen, that's not good. But the law now puts it, and that law now exposed sin. It was supposed to become a guidepost so we could go, okay, if God says, thou shalt not steal, then let's not steal. We shouldn't do that. Just by nature, trying to be godly. But the flesh nature, the law of sin and death, gave us the ability, well, we don't want to listen to that. We're going to take your stuff. We're going to steal. We're going to rob. We're going to kill. We're going to destroy to do all those things. And the law was not working. It wasn't setting us free. It wasn't bringing us liberty. So Jesus came and paid the price and took the weight of our sin on the cross for him. And he destroyed death and the law of sin and death on the cross and broke that old law. So now as Christians, Save we're dealing with the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's the battle. The law of the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. For those who live, verse 5, according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. So those who live according to the flesh, set them, their, 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 their focus is set on the things of the flesh. Now, I want to help you understand how this works on the, what I would call the sin and death spectrum. James describes it like this. Let no one say when they are tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when they are lured and enticed by their own desires. Then... When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It all begins with desire. Desire is fed by setting your mind on the things of the flesh. Desire is when you create focus and direction and intent on things that are not good for you. Bible says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And with desire comes lust. It comes enticement. There's luring. And so you feed your desire by looking at the wrong things, things that would feed the flesh. And so we need to be consistently looking at where's our focus? What are we, what are we reading? What are we watching? What are we singing? What are we doing? This is really important for our children. In Word of Life Christian Academy and our children's ministry, we offer to parents for free. We've already paid for this. It's a, it's a free opportunity for you for cell phone permit. And that's a, 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 a teaching you can take your, your kids through. If they, especially if they don't have a cell phone right now, it's a good to set them up for when they do get it. But the challenge if they already have a cell phone is they feel like you're punishing them. But what it's really doing is creating guidelines and, 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 and barriers and information on how to navigate a world that you and I didn't have to navigate when we were children. How many of you know the internet has changed the way the world does the world? There are things now at disposal on our phone that you had to go down to a store and get your big brother to get. So we have access to sin 
and to feed those desires like never before, whether it be pictures or movies or graphics or rebellion or, or, or teaching, whatever it is, it's there to feed the, the, the flesh, which then leads to temptation. The enticement of desire is when your sin nature has your focus and your attention, and you cannot play with enticement and desire. When, when, when desire will create an unholy fire within you. It's like playing with temptation is, is like picking a fight with Mike Tyson. You do not want to pick a fight with Mike Tyson or any mean person. You don't want to start a fight you can't finish because you start something that you don't realize the consequences are going to be so bad, and that's what happens when you get lured and desired uh, by the desires of, of, your, of your flesh. David sinned because he was lured and enticed because his focus was on the, the, the wrong thing. The Bible says that when the time for the kings to be at war, David stayed home. So this was a time as the leader of the nation, he's supposed to be out with his troops fighting. But he's like, you guys handle that. I'm going to stay home. When, when he is at home, he goes onto his balcony and he sees Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, taking a bath. And she is beautiful looking. And then his lust is enticed and lured and he calls her to his house and he sins. I suggest to you none of that was an accident. I suggest to you that that was all premeditated that he knew he should be at war, but he'd been up on that balcony. Do you think that's Bathsheba's first bath she ever took? Do you think she's like a really, really grubby person, never washed, never bathed? And then one day she's like, oh, I probably should. I can't handle my own smell and dumps into a tub. And David just happens to be on the roof that day. No, she's been up there bathing every day. He's been up there checking it out, thinking to himself, hubba, hubba, ding, ding. Look at the legs on that little thing. So he's up there. He's looking at her. He's getting, and so he's like, you guys go off to war and make sure Uriah gets out there. Now she's alone and he goes up to have a look. What's he doing? He's feeding his flesh. He's been lured and enticed by his own flesh. That's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. They see the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. They know you can not touch that. David should know that's somebody else's wife. You cannot touch that. They look at the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. You should not touch that. But they look at it and say, man, it's pleasing to the eye. It's desirable to make me wise. I, 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 I know that if I eat of that, I'm going to be like God. It looks good for food to me. Why can't I? They started feeding the lust of their flesh. That's where it all began. And they took it and ate and the law of sin and death came into play. That leads us to sin after temptation. Sin is a result of temptation giving birth. Can I, can I just say this? because this could keep some of you healthy. Temptation, even though it's not good, is not sin. Sin, sin. Temptation, we, in the church, we tend to treat people who are tempted like we can't believe you got tempted. And we create this environment where no one can be honest about their temptations terrified to tell somebody that they're tempted in an area lest they be judged for being tempted in that area and rejected by the Christian. 
This is one of the dumbest things we do in the church. When someone's tempted, the best time to talk about your temptation is the temptation. Because if you bring your temptation out into the open and it gets exposed, what's in dark grows, what's out in the light is subdued. And when you talk to somebody, they can walk you through the temptation. I want to see a church where we love people enough, where we're not judging them for their temptation, but we're loving them and helping them not sin. And even when they sin, there should be restoration. But we're trying to help people not sin because sin is what destroys your life. Sin grows into a habit. It grows into a lifestyle. The nature of sin is to take you captive. Here's how sin works. You're tempted, you step across the line, and you sin once. The ways the rabbis would describe that was like a thin web of a spider's web. And one thin web just wraps around you. You don't even notice it. It's there, but you don't even notice it. And then you're tempted and you sin again. And another. So the temptation gets a soft hold on you. But then you start to develop a habit, and now it gets a hold on you. That, that spider's web's now starting to spin. And eventually, that web will become a rope and bind you up. And the habit and the lifestyle will create a stronghold in you that's hard to break because sin has trapped you in. That's why we're going to break it in the temptation phase when it's a thin web, we can snap it. But sin's always trying to get a hold of you. Why? Because it wants to bring you to death. When sin is fully grown, it becomes the executioner of your life. Sin has grown up and has one agenda, to have death. The, the, the devil comes for one purpose and one purpose only, to do what? Steal, kill, destroy. Steal, temptation. Kill, sin. Destroy, consequence of sin. Steal from your life, kill your marriage, destroy your life. Steal from your life, kill your honor, kill your integrity, destroy your life. And it all begins with temptation. All begins with that thin strand of temptation. The wages of sin is like the theory of entropy, that every ordered system is progressing to a system of maximum disorder and decay. The end result of the law of sin and death is decay and destruction. Romans 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, is that us? Is that us, the people who set their minds on the things of the Spirit? Is that you? Is that your neighbor? Are you in the room? Are you awake? Are you alive? Are you quiet because you're feeling convicted? Smile because the person thinks you are. The spirit of life that's in Christ Jesus. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So when you understand the spirit of life spectrum, it begins with desire. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As you spend time in his presence, as you spend time in his word, as you spend time with, with God, then you get, God will impregnate you with the desires of your heart. Adam and Eve despised the abundance and focus on the one thing that they couldn't have. 
That always blows my mind. I am so glad that the Bible actually says it was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not what they taught me in kids' ministry, that it was an apple tree. Anybody in children's ministry get taught it was an apple tree? Anybody get that? It's an easy question. It's either yes or no. Anybody get the apple tree lesson? It's not. A, there's no hidden thing here. I'm not going to be like, yeah, get you. Like, anybody get the apple tree? Yeah, I'm glad it's not an apple tree. Like, I'm angry enough that Adam and Eve were like, God had given them the whole planet. You can have everything. But there's like one shrub in the garden, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And God says, don't touch the tree. You can have the whole planet, but don't touch the tree. I'm angry at Adam. I'm going to hunt him down when I get to heaven. He'll be easy to find. He'll be the only one up there without a belly button. But I'd be really angry if it was an apple. I have never been tempted with fruit and vegetables. I've never once opened the refrigerator and saw a big bunch of kale and thought, ooh, that looks yummy. I've opened up seeing chocolates and been very tempted. But think about that. That's what God's saying. He said, I've given you all of this. Fix your desires. Don't worry about the little things you can't do. Think about all the things that you can do. A mindset. So it begins with desire, then a mindset. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So we set our focus, our thought life. We intentionally, you know, hunger for the presence of God. We intentionally, you know, uh, go after the things of God. Where your treasure is, the Bible says, your heart will be also. And so when you are chasing the presence of God, now I have vision to, to be in God's presence, to do what God wants. And the Bible says that when you have a vision, people... Well, sorry, when people don't have vision, they cast off restraint. That's what the Bible says. So the opposite is true. When you have a vision, you put on restraint. So when there's no plan and you don't have a vision, and vision is birthed out of desire, so when God gives you a desire and you get your mindset to get a vision to do what God wants, now I've got a vision because my desire is focused on God. Now I'm going to have some boundaries. Paul said, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. In other words, I can do whatever I want, but not everything I want is good for me. So I don't do everything I want. I do everything I need to do to be disciplined. That's what, that's what vision does. So I, I've, been, I've been in ministry now close on 40 years, and I've had a lot of people say nasty things about me. People write me nasty letters. Uh, people lie. People make accusations that are like, what are you smoking? Just weird stuff, you know? People that we've invested our life into, that, that left. And so it's easy to be hurt in ministry. But I've been doing this 40 years. I am not a hurt person. You say, why aren't you hurt? I don't have the luxury to be hurt. I don't have the luxury. Now, do I have the right to be hurt? 
Yeah, I've got the right to be hurt. You've got the right to be hurt, but I don't have the luxury to be hurt. Why? Because hurt people end up hurting people. I don't have the luxury not to forgive because if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven. So I've got to live within those boundaries of saying, I'm going to get hurt, but I'm not going to be hurt. I'm going to get quick healing from God and move on in the things of God. Why? Because I have a vision. I want to encourage you, get a vision from God for your life. Set your mind on the things of God. Be the person that God has chosen for you to be. You've got to be that person. There are two natures at war in our spirit. One, one person described it like this. They said there's a big dog and then there's a little dog. The big dog's the flesh, the little dog's the spirit and they're they're at war inside you. So, well, well, who wins? Whatever dog you feed. Whatever dog you feed. There's a battle raging within us. Law of the spirit of life versus the law of sin and death. One pulling you to God, one pulling you away. Rebecca felt pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. They fought so much in her womb, she thought she was going to miscarry. She goes to God, what, what's happened? She doesn't know she's got twins. God says, two nations are in your womb. They're at war. The fight's within you, the flesh and the spirit. And so you and I have that battle. So, so we need to set our minds on the things of God. Read the word, spend time in his presence, cultivate intimacy, focus less on what we shouldn't do and focus more on what we should do. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. God is not holy because he doesn't do bad things. God is holy because he participates in right things. So I'd encourage you, don't be so focused on what you're not allowed to do. Be focused on what you can do. Do the do's and don't worry about the don'ts because if you just do the do's, there's so much time doing the do's, you won't have time to do the don'ts. So put your focus on the things of God, then submit to the Spirit of God. Make sure that the Holy Spirit's not just the resident, but He is the president of your life. Stephen Runge wrote this. He says, for us to follow God, we had to be free from slavery to sin and its penalty. That was just the beginning. To build on this foundation, we must actively submit to the Spirit's ministry in our lives. God's indwelling Spirit enables us to be saved by His life. His life is lived out through us and his instruments. We are his instruments of righteousness. Then that leads us to life abundantly, not to death. That's the vision of Jesus. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly to set us free from the law of sin and death. Listen to his mission statement. This is the mission statement of Christ. This is what he came to do. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. What is that? Freedom to poverty. God says, I don't want you to be bound and restricted by poverty. I came to set you free from poverty. God is not into poverty. He wants the church to be the answer to poverty, to set us free from poverty. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. He wants us to be free from sin and its consequences and recovery of sight to the blind, free from limitations, set at liberty those who are oppressed, free from addictive habits. I used to smoke two packets of cigarettes a day before I was saved. I am glad 
I am free from that addictive habit. Is there anybody in the room today used to have some addictive habits and you're glad that you're free from those? Anybody watching online, maybe type it in the chat and don't tell us your addictive habit. It might be bad, but you had an addictive habit. Anybody glad that you are free? Anybody saved a lot of cash now you don't smoke? Am I the only one? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, even freedom from separation from God. That's the mission of Jesus. We're free because of a partnership between what Jesus has done for us and what the Holy Spirit is going to do through us. The law of the spirit of life, the Bible says, has set you free. I wanted to preach on freedom today because I think it's a good thing for us to reflect on how we're using that freedom. 247 years ago, we signed a declaration of independence to say we want to be free. We want to be free from British rule. We want to be free from under the reign of the king. We want to, we want to be free. And we have freedom as a nation. And as Christians living in the USA, we have extra freedom. We have the freedom that we get from living in Christ, and we have the freedom we get from living in the United States of America. But we have to make sure that we don't use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That we don't use that freedom just to do what we want to do. Bible says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Live, Peter said, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. When I look through some of our freedoms that we have as a nation, I was thinking, man, we have, we have in the church, I think, today, really taken those freedoms and the freedom in Christ to a, to a, a, a liberty that's not brought us closer to Jesus, but taking us further away from Jesus and his kingdom. Do you know since COVID, a lot of churches have just closed down? They've not bounced back. There are even Christian universities around the country that haven't made it back. Some churches slowly staggering back into to growth. People just staying away. We have some freedoms. We have the freedom of speech in our nation. And while we have the freedom to say whatever we want, it's not always in our best interest to say whatever we want. Somebody said this. They, they said, people can think you're a fool, but then when you open your mouth and talk, you'll just remove all ambiguity. The Bible says that we can be snared by the words of our mouth. The Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So while we have the freedom to say whatever we want, it's not always in our best interest to say whatever we want. Sometimes when you're angry, you have the freedom to say whatever you want, but it's not in your best interest to say whatever you want. Did you know when you're angry that they say that your intelligence decreases by 25%? If you're like me, you can't afford to lose 25% of your intelligence. That puts you below zero, like barely being able to hold a crayon. But when you're angry, that's, have you ever said anything when you're angry that you regret later? And they're like, I don't know why I said it. I know why you said it, because you were stupid, because you lost intelligence. So while you have the freedom to speak, it's not always best to speak. 
Life and death are in the power of the tongue. We have the freedom of religion. That is the right to practice or not practice religion. But many Christians in the church use the right to practice and not practice simultaneously. Do you know the average Christian in America goes to church now once every four weeks? Some of you, we haven't seen you since last month. Welcome back. You're cool. We like you. But we just can't be bothered going. There's always things that come up and get in the way of us being in church. There's higher priorities than to be with God's people. So we come once every four weeks. So we have the right to be here, but we don't exercise the right. We have the right to practice. You know, there's about 5% of the church that tithes across America. So next time one of these media outlets is crying about how the church is ripping people off for money, think to yourself, 95% of people who attend church don't give anything. No one's getting ripped off here, people. There's nothing to see. Move on. Now, should it be higher? Yes. Should we be committed? Yes. But we've used that freedom to do whatever we want to do, and I don't, I don't think it's healthy for us. We have the freedom of the press. <laughs> The freedom of the press is the freedom for the press to say whatever the heck they want to say. They're supposed to report news. Very little of what the press does right now is reporting news. All they're reporting is opinion. Don't be sucked in to the opinion of somebody else. I think Greg sent me a video, or Chloe may have sent me this video of this pastor. I just, I've just met him. He's got a church up in New York and he had somebody speaking for him and the press were there hanging around and they came in and you watched them. They were just thugs. They're barging their way in, being all stealth and creating their own little, you know, uh, um, dialogue they were going to say. Anyway, they come up to this pastor, a friend of mine who was not, I haven't been friends long, five days, not real long. They start hassling this guy about how much did you pay that speaker to speak? How much did you pay that speaker? How much did you pay how much did you pay him? None of your business. Like how much are you getting paid to do the interview? What really aggravated the fire out of me, the hypocrisy of someone standing there going, the hypocrisy of that is that as I'm watching it on YouTube, every like 15 seconds there's an ad that comes up, like the interview stops and there's a YouTube ad that they're getting money for. And then there's a little box under it that's there that's got an ad. It's under it, a bigger ad. There are like five ads on the one YouTube video of the people that are asking, what are you paying them? I want to know how much money are you earning on those ads? Tell me much, how much money you're getting and how much money your company is making from this dialogue of information that you're making up. And then maybe we'll answer your question. As you can tell, I'm not really super happy with the media right now. The right to, to keep and bear arms. I think we need to get to do that, but we need some spiritual warfare. We need to get the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but I think it's time for the church to bear arms in the spirit and get the sword of the spirit out. And then the freedom to assemble. It's time for the church to gather again. The band can come up. It's time for the church to gather again. Now, listen, I, I, I got nothing... I don't think there's anything wrong wrong with small churches. If you want to have an itty-bitty, eeny-teeny, yellow polka dot bikini church, 
that, 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 that's cool. But I don't believe that God ever intended his church to be small forever. I, I, I believe, I believe in big churches. We're a growing church. We're not a big church yet. We start to fill this whole thing a couple of dozen times a week, then maybe we can say we're big. When I drive home past more people who are going to hell than we have in the building, when I go to a movie theater and there's more people watching a movie than we had in church, when there's more people in a football stadium watching a football game than there was in church, you better believe as a pastor I have a vision to see the church grow. Why? Why? Because the bigger we are, the more impact we can make. We should have a goal that no one will go to hell, that no one would have to live under the law of the spirit of life, spirit of death, but all would get the spirit of life. That we, we can do things when we're large that you can never do when you're small. Last weekend, we gave a 1,000 people food. We supplied our Hope Expo, food, jobs, health, you know, clothing. We'd all these things, the money that we made from the cheap clothing sales, all going to be shipped over overseas to, to Peru and to El Salvador. But you can't do those things when there's just us four and no more. You can do stuff in a small way, but you can't do things on scale. We want to do things on scale. Why? Because we have a big city and we have a big world and we're in a strategic location. We are in the, the, the capital really of the planet here in Washington, D.C., in the DMV area. And it's about time that God raised up a church to take on the mantle of changing the world around it. I believe that God is calling Word of Life to be such a church. We don't want to be big so we can bring glory to ourselves. We want to be big so we can bring glory to God. So how big do you want it to be? I don't want to cap it with a number. I just want to say, God, just let it grow. Let it grow. Let it be a foundation that young people can launch off and let the next generation that take it, take it bigger than we've ever taken it before. On the altar today, both services just praying for people with broken situations, horribly broken situations, hearts breaking. We need to, you, you could take that need and multiply it by tens of thousands in our community. And we can only meet the needs of brokenness if we are big enough to meet the needs of brokenness. Now, as we grow, we've got to keep our heart pure to make sure that we don't think that we did it and we're all that in a bag of chips. That's our responsibility. God says this. He says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Can I just say this to somebody here? God never outsourced your humility. As a pastor, I give anybody permission to humble me. Not your job. You don't have that right. I'm not outsourcing my humility. It's my humble, humble, what's it say? Humble, humble, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Humble yourself under the hand of God. And then what does God do? Does God keep you down? No, he lifts you up. The way up is down. You go down, he lifts you up. So God can lift you up as long as you can stay humble. Does that make sense? I'm prophesying to somebody here because I didn't say this in the first service. Humble yourself 
It's not your husband's responsibility or your wife's responsibility or your boss's responsibility or my responsibility. No one. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and then God will lift you up. And so I believe that there's no limit to our potentials for for growth if we just don't believe that we did it on our own. And the beauty that I have is I know that I'm not smart enough to do it on my own. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Right at the end it says, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. I I, I wrote this uh, spoken word that, uh, that I thought sums up everything that I've said today, and I want to read that to you. Seems so innocent, harmless. Who will it hurt? So I flirt, walk the edge, a fine line, there's no hedge. Unprotected, no security. In danger, my purity. Feast my eyes on the wrong, ears seduced by the song, the beat, the sound, the sensations, creating pathways to temptation. Designed to feed the beast within, conceived in desire, sin. If I feed it, it will win. Like punching Tyson in the chin, I can't finish, I shouldn't begin. Resist the seduction. Desire on fire creates an unholy unction, the unrelenting suction to a godless function, drawing me away from God's best. I know it's not his test, but a battle of my flesh, creating such unrest so I press, pushing back the sinful force. Time to get off this destructive course, a battle raging deep within, the bias of sin tilting the balance against the spirit's wind. Where do I begin? My head's in a spin. I feel the mocking devil's grin. Have I let the executioner in? Started like a spider's web, hardly seen, just a thread. Now it's spun out of control, a binding rope, a firm stronghold, full-grown, full-blown in me makes itself home, a predator lurking, waiting its time. I ignored warnings, the warnings divine. There is hope, an answer, a solution. It's time to end sin's death constitution. Through Jesus' love, the Spirit's solution, forgiveness, mercy, grace, I sure can use them. My heart, my mind, my will is a faith-filled fusion. I take thoughts into captivity, pull down strongholds, no yoke of slavery, embrace the liberty that Jesus has gained for me. Condemn sin in the flesh. He did that at Calvary. When I'm weightless in grace, I defy sin's gravity. Holy Spirit, sweep over us today. Come into this room. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for those in the room right now that aren't in you, that have never made a decision for you to be their Lord and personal Savior. 